On this week's Bet the Process podcast, we have Brian Burke from ESPN to talk about why Will Levis did not go in the first round. And then Rufus and I talk about some of our Vegas stories, and he gives you a couple very random golf picks. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, bet. Bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage and sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast. It's a post Vegas episode where jeff is um playing under the weather and talking about himself in the third person yeah i am and i'm talking about myself um i wonder if i should covid test myself the problem is if i covid test myself my wife is away right now and um then i would like have some serious childcare issues so ignorance is bliss well the way you get rid of covid like you don't test i mean that's that's always been my philosophy we probably shouldn't talk about that on the podcast. We've been told not to. Um, okay, so what has been going on with you? You're back in New York, and I'm back in uh, New York. Yeah, we we just had. I, I was just. I just saw you. I saw you in two different cities in the last week. Look at that. Jeff, you were in New York, and then you were, in, and then we were both in Vegas. Right. What was the highlight of the Vegas trip for you? Ooh. That's a good question. I mean, the whole thing was a highlight, I think. That round of wind golf was really fun. Yeah, it was. The course was just in such good shape. And it, it was, was we played, we played in sort of late afternoon. And so you had this the the shadows falling, and it was just the perfect time to be out there. Yeah, it was a fun match that we had. We had a good crew going. Like our round at Southern Highlands was so hot, and we were both so miserable that it was like well, Jeff, didn't we start by shooting like both triple bogeys on the first hole? We're like, we're like top. No, I think I, think I only had a double bogey. You only on had a double. Hole. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I had a triple and this was this, you know, after being out till 5 a.m. the night before, we we're playing golf the next morning. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't, it was fun though. And then we got to it see was Shane. Fun. We got to see uh, the, the Warriors win. Um, so all of that. Jeff, I actually saw part of an NBA game yesterday on my flight back. Which I watched, game? I watched Laker. I saw most, I saw most of the third quarter and some of the second quarter of the Lakers Warriors game. Did you want to bet on it? No, not really. I mean, I had no idea who to bet on. So. Well, you should have bet on the Lakers. I mean, I was in the air. You didn't have Wi-Fi. It was, it was on the TV. I know, but you didn't have Wi-Fi to make a bet. You could have in-game bet it. Well, you know, they have the sort of geolocation stuff. So I guess I could have bet it an offshore book, but. Mm-hmm. Got it. But you don't. I'm, do I'm not going to bet unless I feel like I have an edge. And I don't think I had an edge. I would. Got it. Just, yeah. How's, um, are you doing much with the golf this week? It's a, it's an elevated event, right? So it's a good field. It is. Yeah. I mean, I, I do the same thing with the golf every week, basically. Right. But there wasn't like a ton of week? value this week, but, but I'm, I'm we've been implementing some changes to the model. Um, 
some web, actually, maybe this would have been something interesting to talk to Brian about at some point, but just it, it's a difficult simulation that we're trying to put together of, of essentially trying to figure out the unpredictability of weather beforehand. Right. You, what are all these? Very, so how, so weather, I'm assuming weather has a tremendous impact on golf. Yes, it does. Because I feel like I've been hearing you obsess about weather since the masters, essentially. Yeah. I mean, it's something that has been part does of the process the for many, many years. Any, any sport? Uh, I would think so. I mean, certainly more than basketball. Uh huh. And hockey, although I do wonder for hockey, they play that outdoor game every year. And didn't they play an outdoor game in basketball at one point this year? Well, but we've we've also talked about like how some of the cold weather stuff is not just the on the field stuff, right? It's just being in a cold weather climate that's like impacts you if you're from a warm weather climate, right? Yeah, but that's generally when you're playing outside. Right. But golf, I mean, you have, right, you have the temperature, which can affect how far the, far the ball uh, carries. You have obviously the wind is the thing you think of the most, but also think about the course and the greens drying out throughout the day. So if it's, if, as the weather gets warmer, especially if, if it's windy, you're going to have the, the greens kind of get baked out. And so basically there's these interactions with how the course plays with the weather, but it isn't the same in all circumstances either, because it, the effect of sunlight is going to have, is going to be different whether the course was wet before or wasn't. So you know, if a course is already uh, playing really firm and fast, then wind and, and sun are going to really, really make it play faster. But is the PG, that, that is isn't, the... I mean, that that is really tough, but also just figuring out, okay, what is the conditional probability that it's, that it rains at 10 a.m. conditional on, there was a 47% chance of rain at 9 a.m. And we simulated that it, it, it was raining at 9 a.m. So these are things I don't have answers to. Um, I, I'm basically trying to build a model without the data to, to do it. And, and, and at the same time, also like, okay, we have a weather forecast for wind, right? It's supposed to, the wind is supposed to be six miles an hour in the morning, building to like 13 in the afternoon before dying. Like if it ends up being three miles an hour in the morning, what's the likelihood? Is it are we essentially just shifting that in intercept down and we expect it's, it's going to be the same pattern, but three miles an hour less, or was it that, um, or, or is it going to, or, I mean, or is it less dependent and it's probably going to vary depending on certain locations. Like think of a place like San Diego where like, okay, it's going to be when the thermal layer bakes off, that's when the temperature is going to warm up. And so if that happens later in the day, it doesn't later in the morning, it doesn't mean that it's, it doesn't mean that we're not going to get to that same high in the afternoon. It just means that the morning temperature is going to be a little colder. Got it. Yeah. Um, sorry. It's, this is. No, you've been nerding out on weather. So you want to talk about it. I get it. Well, I mean, there's <laughs> literally, I don't have an answer to any of this because I, I, yeah, but I, but I do want to, I, I want to get a ballpark estimate to be able to sort of handle the uncertainty of weather effects better rather than just saying, okay, this is what the weather's forecast to be that's what it is. That's what it's going to be. And simulating off of that. Did you have a tilted moment of the week? Yeah. Um, my tilted moment was actually flying out to Vegas. I, I got to JFK and I, I'd been kind of relaxed in the afternoon. I, I was ready to go pretty early. Um, I was, I was on a, a team call actually. Um, I thought I had time for a team call and I'm not stressed. I get to JFK like an hour before my flight. 
um, well, I, I took the subway and the air train because it was a, what, four o'clock flight, maybe five o'clock flight. And so there's going to be rush hour. Um, but I'm it, it, that whole process, the air train takes freaking forever. I'm getting up there. There's a big line of, for the self-check-in of bags. Um, and there's a line for even the kiosks and, and, but I'm not that rushed. I have like, there's an hour till my flight. And so I get, I finally get to one and basically it says, oh, you can't check your bag. Cause it's, it's 59 minutes before the flight instead of an hour before the flight. And, and they're like, would you rather, would you like to get on this flight that leaves at 9 30 PM, like in five hours? Um, and I was like, fuck, no, I don't. Um, and so I basically just went to the assistance line and basically was like, can you please like get my bag on there? And they did. Nice. I mean, they gave me the late check the, the it was a late bag. So, I mean, I didn't care if the bag got there with the different flight. I just didn't want to, because I didn't need, I wasn't golfing at 10 PM that night. I just wanted right. to be there for the next afternoon. So I, it was tilted, but I made it through. Doesn't seem very tilted. I was tilted in the moment when I was like, oh shit, am I going to have to, what, what do I do? Do I get, like, I can't leave my clubs at the airport clearly. <laughs> like, do I, you, you, what would you do in that situation? I guess you'd have to take the like 930 flight. I mean, I think I would have done what you did, right? Which is like, try to get a, someone to, to do that for you. I think it was smart. I like that. I like the uh, aggressiveness to go after that. Um, my tilted moment was the Celtics. They were given this gift essentially where um, Embiid was hurt. And if they had just closed out the Atlanta series when they did, they were probably going to get a couple of games without Embiid. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the Philly off of like shorter rest. And yet they lost to Atlanta and then they did get a game without Embiid and they lost that game. And they were like, actually, because I have these Boston Futures, they were actually minus, I think, 150 or something to win the East at the start of the series. The series was, you know, because of the perception of the two teams and whatnot and Embiid being out, this this line was was really big from a series perspective. And then they, they shit it all away in game one. So now they have a must-win game in game two. Embiid is coming back. Um and they're still seven and a half point favorites. So like theoretically the market's saying they should win, but it's pretty tilting that they kind of shit this all away. You got nothing to say? No. I mean, you know what, Jeff, normally I can't relate to you being a sports fan of teams that win, but I've actually, but I've been kind of on cloud nine recently with my Orioles. <clears throat> got it. 29 are fun. They, I had They're a the, really fun team. I had the over last night in the Orioles game. So that was kind of fun where it just, you know, blew over. You didn't have any sweat. No, not at all. I think I have Kansas City tonight, actually. Um, they they have a lot of fun. They have a lot of players that are really fun to watch. Yeah. The youth, youthful exuberance. And, and the, well, Jeff, do you know their AAA team is 20 and seven and has outscored their opponents by like over 100 runs? They're 20 and seven and their Pythag bag is actually like 21 and six. So their triple A team right now, like would def, I think that would be better than the Oakland, better than the worst MLB team. Last night we, um, we won, we won a, a unit and a half, but we literally almost lost to Washington, Colorado and Oakland. 
Yeah. Bet against all three of them. And we almost lost all three of those games. You know what is interesting? Just an, uh, an observation this year so far is normally you see more randomness in the month of April. Like the, the best teams don't really separate themselves. And you have teams that kind of come out of nowhere and, and kind of overperform before they come back to, you know, they come back to the pack. But, uh, but this year you have bad teams being really bad early. Like Oakland's six and 24, Kansas City's seven and 23. And it feels like that is unusual. Normally the bad teams at least are like, you know, more mediocre early in the season and there isn't as much differentiation. But I mean, I don't, you have a 24 and six team in the Rays and a six and 24 team. I don't know when after 30 games you've had teams 18 games apart. Do you think that's a function of, um, like in the case, I mean, in the case of the Rays, I think it's just variance, right? I mean, I think they're good, but I don't think they're that good. But in the case of the A's, like, this is a historically bad team. I mean, this is not, like, they're making no bones about putting a competitive team on the field. Although, they did have a no-hitter last night going through eight innings, so. Wow. I mean, they're yes, they're. I'm pulling up the roster right now. Um, they're not a good team, clearly, but they've also underperformed. And you have teams every year that put out rosters like this to start the season that, you know, they're, they're, they got young guys. They want to get, take a look at as well as just placeholder guys while, while their prospects develop. And I, I don't actually, I don't know. I haven't bet on the A's. I haven't bet baseball at all. So I know that their closer has more walks than strikeouts. That's not for very good. Fujinami. Is that the guy that's the closer? Familia. He's listed. He's listed on yeah. Baseball Reference as their closer. Yeah, Urus familiar. You know what's interesting? So, like, I stopped following baseball probably, I don't know, right before the strike season, right before the COVID season, and like, I just this is the first year that I started following it again. Seeing some of the names that are still around, and also like the other day, I tweeted out that Jason Hayward was hitting third for the Dodgers. He's still alive. And, like, <clears throat> Well, and I also like the Dodgers. My perception is they're a good team, and now they were missing a bunch of guys that are injured. But the world where, and then like you look at a lot of these teams and where who's hitting third and fourth for them. I I don't know. Like I, it it's a weird trend in baseball, which seems like there's just like a lot of bad players still hanging out and hanging around. I mean, I feel like there's fewer bad players, old players that are still around. I mean, Jason Hayward, I wouldn't call him a bad player. He I mean, maybe he is now, but yeah, look, I mean, but he was a guy that was a, a contributor early in his career. He, sure. he, he never he's, lived he's, up to the hype. He's, but. he's certainly talented. I guess, I guess he's one of those he's, guys. He's only like... 33 somehow. <clears throat> he came up at age 20 with the, with the Braves, but there is a lot more, a lot more youth in baseball now than there has been in the past. It feels like, and his teams aren't giving the longer contracts to older guys. And I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting to see the next, uh, the next sort of collective bargaining agreement, what happens uh, because right now the, the system is basically set up so that the owners, well, the teams don't, don't pay players uh, when they're at, in their best years, typically because, you know, free agency doesn't happen until six years in. And so now that we don't have players lasting till age 40 on the regular, it's, it's not a great system, but. Which, which uh, sport do you think has the contract structure that makes the most sense? 
I personally, I still like the baseball system better just because it's, it's this whole ecosystem and understanding it is, is kind of fun and, and knowing the ins and outs. And that's just as much fun as watching the games, which has the worst or best was the question. Well, I mean, I think football is really bad for the players, right? Right. Not guaranteed contracts. Baseball does have guaranteed contracts once you get a free agent deal. Um, The NBA. Baseball, though, like you had this whole notion that, you know, Billy being exposed where you didn't want to be paying for past performance. And so, like, they were signed to these long contracts. And by the end of the contract, they weren't, they're going to underperform that dollar. So, I mean, look, look at the Orioles right now. What they have the second lowest payroll in baseball. And that's because technically they have a catcher that's they traded for basically we're giving away the, the Mets backup catcher. Who's making like double digit million a year, but the Mets are like paying for that contract. And then they signed Adam Frazier to a one year, $8 million deal to basically be utility infielder. So their best players are all guys that are making basically the major league minimum and, and won't make that much money for a lot for a little while. So, I mean, look at the Rays. They've they've shown how you can create a system where you trend these guys, these young guys out, and then trade them to to replenish the system and just cycle it on repeat. Yeah. I'm why do you think the, more why do you think more teams don't do this just because they don't have the smart more people to do it? Um I don't think it's just well. I think part of it's building a good infrastructure and the Orioles lacked that for, for many, many years, but right now they have, I mean, they have a very good player development system. They've invested in analytics in the minors and, and I think that's a big part of it as well. And so before the Orioles always, they hadn't churned out a a good starting pitcher, homegrown starting pitcher since like Mike Messina really. And so that's like a failure of, player development in the organization as much as it's a failure of of getting the right players so i think there's a lot that goes into it and but i i don't know the answer to that i mean if you have more money you're gonna i mean you're i don't know sometimes you're gonna spend it like the mets but but the orioles had the luxury of i mean the orioles got lucky with some top picks and they were a epically bad team for three years and i mean they tanked basically right okay let's bring in brian burke and then we'll talk to you guys all again on the other side we now welcome in espn's brian burke who is one of the ogs we've we've had like a tour of the ogs analytics people we've had kevin pelton on recently um who else have we had on rufus that are ogs like brian you are og i think uh i think that I remember when I was at Pro Trade, uh, this is probably in 2004, 2005, I called you, I think, and found you. And we talked about what you're doing with advanced football analytics. So uh, tell our seven listeners who you are and how you got to be the an OG NFL analytics guy. Oh, man, that's a it's a long story. I do remember your Pro Trade uh, stuff, which was a big inspiration, actually. Um, and the win probability stuff in particular. Uh, that so, was way ahead of its time, by the way. Like, I mean, the fact, like, in the fact that people didn't like it was way ahead of its time too. Like, we we had that on a Warriors broadcast and on an ESPN broadcast. And Fitzgerald, the 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 Warriors uh, commentator, used to shit on it every time when they put it on. So <laughs> we were early to the everyone hates analytics uh, bandwagon. Yeah, no, there's that never ends. Um, so. Yes, my background is I'm, I'm a 
I'm a Navy guy. I used to be a pilot. I got out of the Navy, had sort of a normal job that was kind of boring. And I started doing football stats as a hobby and um, eventually started a website. I didn't had no intention of it kind of growing to how it did, but eventually it kind of blew up and developed uh, some of the original um, kind of the foundational stats that, that folks use nowadays in football analytics. Um, did a lot of stuff with fourth downs a long time ago. Um, and then eventually turned, it was just a hobby. Uh, and then ESPN came calling and, and recruited me. So now, now I'm at ESPN. Who, who was leading the effort for ESPN at that point in terms of trying to become more analytically inclined? Cause they brought you over, obviously they brought, you know, Ben Alomar and those types of people over, like who, who was the leadership that was leading? And I'm just curious. Uh, Dean Oliver was the first director and mm -hmm. then, uh, above him, Jeff Bennett was the vice president. I don't think he was VP yet, but he was kind of the visionary that, um, said, hey, we, you know, ESPN needs an analytics uh, arm. And uh, he, he was a person to champion it. If you were to give, um, you know, ESPN, if you were like a critic of ESPN, what do you think you guys have done well in the analytics world? And what do you think you guys have done poorly? In, uh, in, in I would say in the football space, especially what ESPN doesn't do well is, we don't communicate internally well enough. Um, and what ends up happening is, uh, let's say Sports Center or some other you know, channel will pick up something that the analytics team has done, but they don't kind of fully understand what it means. And they, they take our numbers as sort of ground truth. They really trust us too much. And we saw this in the draft last week. So they'll publish something like, Will Levis had a 0.1% chance to fall into the second round. And I'm like, no, 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 not quite. I mean, that's what the model may have said, but uh, first of all, we can't, we don't have that kind of precision, um, you know, to go into decimal places. Uh, and it's probably not 0.1%, it's just something under 5%. Um, so we don't communicate that well. Uh, it's really challenging uh, because a lot of this stuff is complicated and needs some context and an explanation to go along with it. But on TV or in a tweet, uh, you just can't do that. So that's what I would say. So in, in sort of classic Twitter criticism way, you got a fair amount of criticism for that with uh, Levis uh, not going in the first round. You know, I think it's a fair point, right, which is ultimately that people that uh, there are sort of like misaligned incentives sometimes around how uh, TV producers want to portray analytics and what analytics really say and the limitations of them, which cause ESPN to be in somewhat of a challenged position from time to time. But when you think about that model and that sort of prediction beyond better communication, do you think that was a bad prediction or do you think that was, you know, 5%? That's, that's what 5% is. I think it was, a, I think it was a miss uh, by the, not only the model, it's a limitation of the model. It's not perfect. So that part's on me, but also I think, you know, the, the mocks, the inputs that I use, they were obviously way off on him too. So, you know, I think some of the blame can be shared in that regard. Um, I think, you know, because this is a betting podcast, one of the realizations I had, I think, I think Jeff's frozen again. 
my Wi-Fi sucks. I tried to go and do it off my off. I'm doing it off my. We can continue though. All right. I apologize. So anyway, yeah, I think the I think the criticism is deserved. I think the blame can be shared by the model, the limitations, imperfections in the model, but also the the predictors, the the, the inputs it uses were were way off on those too. And one of the things I realized, uh, because this is a betting podcast, is that the the use case for these models I originally developed this for teams to use, uh, so they could kind of maneuver up and down the draft and still get the players they want. So maybe they need to trade up to get a player that they covet. They need to, this will tell them where they need to be to get that player. Or maybe they can they can move back and still get the player they want uh, and then pick up some picks, right? That's what it's for. So if the model says, hey, 1% will Levis at, you know, falls out of the first round, no team is going to be sensitive to whether that's 0.1 or one or 5%. Nobody's gonna sit there at 32 and wait for Will Levis to fall into their lap. And so, the use case of the model originally was not built out for optimized tail performance. It, it's, and it performs very well in the, in the meat of the distribution. Um, but betters are different, right? They want to know whether Will Levis falling out of the first round at plus 30,000 or whatever it would be uh, is a good bet or not. So the tails have really come into focus because of betting. That, that's a really good point. And I think a lot of people, I mean, I know the the NFL draft has become a, a big betting event and I, I, I've never bet on it. I don't know what sort of tail bets there are available, but uh, I'm guessing, I'm guessing uh, a lot of people used it. Maybe not to bet on Will Levis falling outside the first round. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but not, not just for the draft, but in general, like the people are paying much more attention to those sorts of things than, you know, they used to like to me, um, you know, if, if a win probability model says, you know, 99.5%, but in reality, it should be 99%. In one regard, that's like a 0.5% error, but to a better, that's like, better, better. that's a huge error, right? It's I mean, it's, yeah. yeah it's... Right. So, you know, a lot of my work was sort of before sports betting became, you know, so popular and legal uh, throughout the country. So, yeah, this, it's a it's a changing world, um, and I'm not going to uh, pretend that 0.1% uh, was correct. And and a lot of the conversations I did have on Twitter were very constructive. And um, and and uh, yeah, so you know we'll improve things for sure. First off, I think in my own betting, I kind of struggle with the same thing. I, I tend to be better at the the way I build my models. I tend to be better at the sort of meat of the prediction versus the tails. And I know there's other people that make their living off of tails, guys like Taleb, but uh, it, it is interesting to see how these different approaches work. But back to Levis, yeah. do you think, I mean, my whole thought was like, okay, there are going to be some 0.1% outcomes that happen. I mean, I, I was playing with, um, I was playing with the, not the simulator, but the, just the model page. And, you know, you're looking and like, there's a specific pick and there's like a 3% chance that for the second round pick that the most likely guy is drafted is 3%. So yeah. you're going to have lots and lots of very, very unlikely outcomes that occur. But do you think part of it is almost due to the fact that it's not a game played on the field where it's, it is somebody just announcing a name. And so suddenly we're like, how, you know, it, it feels like it's, it's harder to trust a model for something like, like human decision-making. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So human, human decision-making is, 
notoriously difficult to predict, right? And you've got 32 different decision makers. Um, and the way the model works is it, it works on error. Basically, it looks at like where, let's say a mock draft, a well-respected one, say like Kuiper. When he mocks a player at 10, how often does that player go at nine, go at eight, go at seven, go at 11, you know, go at 10, exactly at 10. How often, you know, what does that error look like? And so it's built off of errors. We know there's there's going to be error. Um, I think, yeah, I think um, the, you know, the one thing about the draft as, as sort of a, you know, place to bet is, and I, I think I learned this from you, Rufus, was that like, for example, like golf events where you have like N players, right? There, there could be value there. Like the betting markets in like a, you know, a game spread kind of bet, they're too efficient to beat. Um, but I think you have these like multiplayer end player sort of events and even the books struggle to come up with good odds, I think. And so I think there is high value, especially early on in the, um, in the process. So like a week out before the draft, I think there's a lot of good value. What, what I wonder on the, the Levis situation is, you know, the, the data that you use to build the model is based on, you know, what you're hearing or what someone's hearing, right? And there is a lot of incentive for them to give you misinformation in that, right? Like if I'm a GM, I don't want to tell you who I'm going to pick, right? So you're you're basing, you know, this on misinformation at some level. And so I ultimately, like, it's surprising to me that the model has been as good as it is because of like, there. I'm surprised there haven't been more Will Levises along the way. But Jeff, I mean, what you're saying is that like the Mel Kuypers of the world are basically wrong because of misinformation. That whole, in, you, you, that's kind of an indictment on the whole industry of prognosticating, you know, mock drafts. Yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. but like if, I, if I'm, if I'm Maybe. a smart franchise, why the hell do I want anyone to know who I'm going to pick? It's, no, it's no. silly. Like I have no incentive to tell you to tell Mel Kuyper who I'm really going to pick. Let's let's take a step back for a second. And Brian, do you want to maybe give like an elevator pitch for for how the model was built in in way in sort of layman's terms, but maybe slightly <laughs> analytically savvy layman? No, that's um, I, I sort of did just a moment ago. So the, the model takes the like past let's say twelve years of mock drafts, in multiple mocks per year, and it takes uh, Scouts Inc. grades and ranks um, for all the players. And what it does is it looks back through actual drafts and says, hey, when, when a player is mocked at pick X, he actually goes at pick X minus one, this often pick X minus two, this often pick X plus one, that often, right? And it just compiles that. And it uses some, some fancy math to kind of combine all that information. And uh, it also uses team needs. So there's an adjustment for team needs. There's a special adjustment too for quarterbacks. I have a variable in there. It's like a, a binary variable set at QB. So if you're, you know, the, uh, <clears throat> you know, the Bills or Chiefs right now, you're not going to take a quarterback in the first round, obviously. So um, it also accounts for the possibility of trades. So even though the Chiefs won't take a quarterback, that's not to say somebody won't trade up to 32 and and take a quarterback uh, in the first round. So takes all that stuff into account and does some math to kind of combine all those things and then gives you a distribution of possible outcomes. Um, the, one of the challenging parts is like, it's, it's a probability, right? So it has, everything has to add up to one. 
So every player's probability has, has to add to one. He's going to be picked somewhere, even if you count like not being drafted as a pick. And then each pick is going to occur, right? So all the players' probability has to add up to one in each pick number. So um, that's how it works. So, uh, you know, first off, I, re I read the more detailed explanation, which you can find if you, Brian had a Twitter thread that, that linked to an explanation, which then linked to sort of older articles you wrote about the sort of Bayesian approach to it, which I highly recommend reading if you haven't. But my, my first thought is, are there, you know, you're fitting this all based on previous data. Is an underlying assumption then that decision makers are about this, I guess, as accurate as they have been in the past and, or sorry, not decision makers, but, but the sort of mocks as well as that the decision-making process is kind of the same as it has been going forward. Yeah, it, it does. So it makes the assumption that the mocks are consistently, you know, uh, at least representative uh, from the past decade or so. Um, it also doesn't like grade out individual mock experts, right? It doesn't say Kuiper is this accurate, so he gets this weight, and Daniel Jeremiah, he's been this accurate, so he, he gets a different weight. It, it treats them all the same generally. Um, and and one you mentioned Taylor before. And, you know, one of the ways the, the model can whiff is, is because of the, that assumption is that these, we're, we're saying that this year's draft is going to be, you know, represented by past year's drafts. And since we're only talking about maybe 12 years worth of data, you know, definitely there, there can be things that could happen in the 13th year uh, that has never happened before in, uh, in years one through 12. And so that, that's a that's a fault of the model. Like that's the component, that's the, the part, the share of the blame that that I that I'll take on is that that assumption, you know, is you know, works. It makes the model useful. Um, but if if we can you know relax that assumption somehow, add some uncertainty uh, to the model, I think that'll help at the tails of the, you know, the, the levis type situation. I think it's, I mean. You make a good point. It's so hard not to overfit. And I struggle with that basically with any sport I model. I'm modeling it based on past data. But you talk about adding sources of more uncertainty and, and variance. And sort of two things came to mind when I was thinking about this. Are there some teams um, that are more or less predictable than others in terms of who they pick and whether that's sort of close to consensus? Like the Seahawks for years have gotten a reputation of like taking stretching for guys in the first round that that they shouldn't and we saw it this year with the Detroit Lions so that's one and the second is yeah. that are there players that have less certainty in terms of where they're picked i.e when you look at mock draft when you look at mock drafts you could have a player that is mocked it can like around the same pick by maybe every mock every mock drafter yeah. uh but that's not giving the full range of the play. So, so it gives you a sense of confidence that this is where he's supposed to go, but that's just sort of the, the modal outcome for him or is it the modal or the median? I don't know the, what they're mocking. Modal, yeah. um, modal. So, so it's like, you know, everybody could have had Levis projected in the top 10, but then also have said, well, if he doesn't go in the top 10, he could fall out of the first round because, you know, none of these teams need quarterbacks. And I know you have the quarterback adjustment, but, is yeah. there, I mean, I, I like, I, I don't know how you'd be able to model all that stuff in there. <laughs> well, I think, 
you know, I haven't really taken a look and studied team predictability levels uh, because one of the reasons is the front offices change. And by the time you get it, you know, by the time there's enough sample size and to do an analysis like that, um, you know, anecdotally, definitely the Lions were, would surprise a lot of people. Um, the, uh, the Raiders notoriously have been uh, kind of wild cards in the draft in the past. Um, so, you know, so there's no like individual, you know, hey, this team is a wild card kind of factor built into the model. Um, I mean, that's that's interesting. As far as as far as positions, I think the, the big fallers are there's private information that's not publicly available. Um, so, for example, the, the only thing comparable to the Will Levis thing was Miles Jack in like 2011, where he was like a consensus top 10, top five. Uh, player and he, and he fell out in the first round, um, and he had, he had bad a bad knee was what came out later. Um, there was one other thing you asked. I, I want, another point I wanted to make, but it slips my mind. I might come back to it. If that's okay. Oh, the players, the fact that having well, oh, I, yeah. the median versus the distribution. So yeah, so that's okay. Um, in the model. This kind of model does not require independence. Uh, you can't have independence because all these experts, all these people you know, making these mock drafts, they they're all watching the same film, right? So you, you, they they're not independent uh, because they're all looking at the same players, making similar evaluations. And uh, but the way this model works, it doesn't require independence. It requires something called conditional independence, which is a fancy way of saying they're not copying off each other. So as long as like Mel and Todd aren't looking at each other's mocks and going, oh, you know what? Yeah, you know, he's he has that player at three. And yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to be out on, on a limb too far. So I'll also put him at three. As long as they're not doing that, it's okay. Um, and you know, one one reason why maybe model seems overconfident in the tails is maybe that's not a valid assumption. Maybe, maybe they are kind of copying off each other. It's interesting to think that the fragility of information basically works one way. Guys are, it's more likely that you, to see a guy fall than yeah. to see a guy rise. I mean, guys do rise, but then that becomes pretty well known during the process. Whereas well, part of it is you, you can't, you know, it, it's a, you know, it's like a survival kind of system, right? So you, you can't be picked on Wednesday, like before the draft starts, right? So, uh, so that's one reason why there's a bias, kind of downside bias. And I think there's just entropy, right? I think like the universe just moves in that direction. You know, you're not going to get, there's not going to be like an internal report on a player that says, oh, guess what? This guy's ACLs are like golden. Yeah, they're just awesome ACLs. Like that <laughs> medical information is, is either, yeah, he's good to go or there's a problem. Um, so I think that's that's the other driver. Okay. So uh, how, I know that the, the, the thing that got up most attention was the Lions two first round draft picks. How <laughs> How bad were they? Is the analytics mob sort of overstating that the the impact, or are they that bad? I think essentially what they did was took what was it twelve pick? I think or twelve and eighteen, right? And then thirty four, maybe if I got it got it right. And essentially what they did was by doing what they did, they gave away the twelve pick. Essentially, they could have had Gibbs at they could have had their top three players at the neck their next pick, right? So they could have had Gibbs at eighteen. They could have had the linebacker's name slips my mind at 34 and, and so on. Um, and so they were also doing, doing this at positions 
that are not like highly valued positions too. Like they just put on a master class of like what not to do. So but the, the original use case of the model is kind of would have helped them. They would have said, oh, you know what? Maybe there's not a hundred percent chance that, that Gibbs is going to be on the board at 18, but there's a 90 some percent chance. And that's worth it. Uh, you know, we could have the pick of the litter here at 12. We could get a top end cornerback, top end pass rusher, still get Gibbs, still get all the other guys we still wanted. Uh, the classic example of this was Alex Leatherwood a couple of years ago. And this is what made ESPN really turn on to this model. Like, hey, this is really kind of useful analysis is, you know, the, the Raiders you know, like really reached for Alex Leatherwood, this kind of guard tackle guy who's already kind of washed out a little bit. And um, they could have they could have waited and had him at their second round pick. Um, and, you know, that, that was kind of universally agreed to as well. It's not just the model telling you that. It's like, you know, just your intuition, all the experts are saying, yeah, actually, you, you probably could have had Gibbs at 18. So I think it was colossal. I, I really think they just kind of, you know, burn, set, set the number 12 pick on fire, essentially. Do you think this kind of comes from, and, and I guess having read some stuff afterwards, um, it comes from, them having been really set on particular players and being like, this is the guy we have to have. And sort of, I don't want to say like an endowment effect because they don't have me yet, but like a loss aversion, like we can't lose this guy. Oh yeah. I mean, I think there's, and, and our, our common uh, friend, Kate Massey, you know, co-authored the kind of seminal paper on all this psychology behind all this stuff. Um, yeah. Loss aversion, um, definitely overconfidence and their ability to kind of project that the player is really going to turn out the way they think he will. Uh, so yeah, I think there's all kinds of kind of human nature, really interesting kind of psychology uh, wrapped up in all that. So when you think a little bit about um, from a broader perspective, the role that analytics could play or, you know, like there, there are all these new businesses right now that are trying to like create analytics businesses and whatnot. And like, you know, this is certainly one application, the, you know, the draft and, and there's value there. Where do you, where do you see the most value for analytics from a business perspective? Yeah, definitely. You know how they say it's, it's the gyms and Joe's not the X's and O's, right? So like the fourth down thing is valuable. That's like, you know, when I started doing that, that was, they were, they were setting like a half a win a year on fire by punting and, and kicking too much. They're a lot smarter now, but it's still maybe like a quarter win a year or, or a third of a win per year. Um, but, you know, th that's great. But you know, roster construction, I think, is, the, you know, where the, where the money is, right? Obviously, there's these teams have 200 million budgets on this stuff. So uh, they that's where I think the, the business case is, because these teams are risking so much money. I think any sort of analytical tool that just improves their decision making, you know, 0.1%, you know, multiply that by 200 million and that's money. Uh, so I think, I think that's probably the best case is sort of, you know, roster construction, optimizing your roster. Um, and it doesn't have to be like a single tool, like this draft predictor thing, but like the overall process in general to kind of, you know, if you had a more rigorous sort of scientific decision-making approach up in Detroit, maybe, maybe they make better decisions uh, than they did. Um, so that's, I, I think that's, that's where, you know, teams win and lose uh, is, is with the players, not necessarily, you know, fourth downs or, 
you know, when to when to give up an intentional touchdown. That stuff's really cool and fun, interesting to talk about, but I definitely think it's 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 the roster. Got it. Rufus, you got anything else? Uh no, I think I think that's that's all I have. I, okay. I think that was really, really interesting. And it was really great to get such insight into into the draft model. Thanks for joining uh, yeah. us, Brian. Yeah, anytime, anytime. And uh yeah, if you if you have criticisms or thoughts or anything, I'm all ears. Well, whenever you put something out like that, you're always going to get blowback, you know, when you're wrong. No, nobody ever, nobody ever says, oh, that 67% chance this is going to occur was correct. Like you're great, but it, yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of a different feeling, you know, if it, it, all of your mistakes, everything you've done wrong is like public, <laughs> public information. And the ESPN brand is, is one that's, you know, it's got a target on its back in a lot of ways. So um, yeah, like the model puts out like 80,000 predictions every time it runs. So every pick that happens, there's like about 80,000 different player pick combinations that it's spitting out. And so you're bound to have, you're bound to have a few, um, you know, highlighted. Well, thanks. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. thanks guys. So that was our interview with, uh, Brian Burke from ESPN. Um, and we, you know, obviously covered a lot of interesting like draft modeling stuff. Um, are you familiar with this, the company that um, that uh, Eric Eager and is working for? What's it called? The company that uh, it's like, I don't know the name of it, but it's like Paul Tudor Jones and Thomas Dimitrov. Are, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's it called? He actually messaged me about this like earlier today. I know Paul, yeah, everyone's like talking about it because they're recruiting right now people to work there. So maybe we should get someone from that thing on because i'm curious about what they're doing and one of the things i was alluding to when i was like talking to brian was a little bit about like i'm very skeptical of these analytical businesses because people that they're recruiting like silicon valley people to potentially go join and um everyone that they recruit reaches out to me and is like hey do you know about this company what do you think and i'm obviously super skeptical just because you know i've talked about this and you and i have debated about this like how do you actually make a business using analytics and sports, like, is there a way to really do that? Um, it's and it's, it's kind of hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a lot easier to just bet. Yeah. That's, that's what we, that's what you do. Yeah. Um, any, anything else? Do you have any predictions for this week? Not really. I mean, let's see. I, for golf, I hope the Orioles sweep the Royals. Then, then I mean, the Orioles have had the easy part of their schedule so far, and then they're going to get into the meat of it. But uh, I could I could pull up a golf pick if you'd like. Yeah, pull up, pull would out you, a golf. Would you pick. like that? Do you? Sure. While I do that, do you have any picks? Um, I just I have the I'm watching this game on my phone. I have the Mets minus one fifty five today, and it's they're down three nothing already. So that's good um no i don't i don't really have anything i don't know when this thing will like actually hit so i don't know what like what pick i would give um maybe i should give an nba pick uh i'm gonna do warriors in game two warriors minus whatever the points are let's see what the points are i think they're really good at home and they'll make the right adjustments and um they, they they did not shoot the ball particularly well in game one let's see here it's tomorrow, Thursday at home. They're oh, they're five and a half now. I thought it was like four and a half. Five and a half seems like a lot. Um, 
I'll take the Warriors minus the five and a half. Okay. I will say I didn't find a lot of value on outrights this week. And like literally looking right now at the board with my odds and all the other books odds, there's not a lot of color on that screen. Um, in fact, there's literally two players inside of 150 to one where I show a 10% edge or, or higher uh, at, at any book. And um, one of those is Bo Hostler at 160 to one. At you FanDuel. love Bo Hostler. You can also get 140 to one at bet three, six, five. Um, I make him 130 to one. And the other one is going to be Tyrrell Hatton who I make 42 to one. Um, you can get 47 plus 47.55 at Pinnacle, it looks like, and 48 to one at FanDuel. So those are, those are two, uh, yeah, two guys that I do show value on. Cool. Well, good seeing you all this time. Yeah. It was, it was a, it's, we've had a lot of each other in the last week, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm battle. Hopefully I'll battle back from this injury. Um, what, uh, what are you looking forward to most in the next week? Just getting back into a good routine, um, which I kind of had started doing right before I, I left for Vegas. And then also, also apartment hunting, that kind of thing. Just getting, Oh yeah. You're I, buying a house. That's cool. Um, I don't know if I'm going to buy a rent, but I'm, I have to figure out my housing situation before it, in the next three weeks or so. And you're yeah. definitely staying. I, mean, I, I can just get a monthly, right. I can just get a monthly Airbnb if I don't have it figured out for then, but yeah. It's, it's why are you staying in New York? Because I tell like the listeners why you're staying in New York. Um, I, I love the energy of the city. It's it, I can't think of a better place to be. I mean, I'm not going to be here year round full time. Like I'm in Vegas in the winter and Maine a lot in the summer, but it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty nice place to be. Cool. All right, everyone. We'll talk to you guys all again next week where we have a very special podcast. We have a different kind of guest next week. It's not a sports-related guest, but it's a very interesting guest. So we'll talk to you guys all again next week. All the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are about to end just running off a of Reddit. 